Like Moses before him, Lehi gave his people a series of warnings before they entered the promised land. And like Moses before him, Lehi knew exactly how many of these warnings would be listened to or ignored. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, your favorite Come Follow Me podcast, even when it comes out on Saturday night. I'm Mark Holt, so glad to have you with me. And for those of you who are just joining me, if you have a question you'd like to ask the program, please send me email at gt at gospeldoctrine.com. Our first question this week comes from Jason, who asks, I was wondering why First and Second Nephi are separated into two books. Uh, my, my guess on that, well, I can't say exactly, Jason, but... The beginning of the Book of Mormon explains that anything in italics was inserted later. So when you see a chapter heading that's written in italics, you can know that was a modern uh, innovation. And so therefore, when we see at the first page of uh, Second Nephi, the big type across the top of the page says the second book of Nephi and then an account of the death of Lehi, etc. That is all in block text and not italics. And therefore, we know that it was on the original plates that Joseph Smith translated. So it wasn't a choice uh, by the modern editors or even by a Joseph Smith translator. This was a choice of Nephi. Uh, so we can only guess as to why it was separated into two books. Uh, my guess as to the reason is that now they've arrived in the promised land and it felt like thematically uh, a new chapter was unfolding, if you will. And so that's my answer to your question. Thank you for that question, Jason. Bella asks, I was reading 1 Nephi 22 and began thinking of the promises given to Abraham and the blessings that are promised to his posterity, the house of Israel. I'm a little confused. Is the Abrahamic covenant the actual promise that his seed will be blessed, but not what his children have to do to be blessed? Not sure if that makes sense. Essentially, I'm trying to figure out how will the blessings be received by the house of Israel? Is it through the Abrahamic covenant or by the making and keeping of our covenants? Also, is there any connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the new and everlasting covenant? What a wonderful question, Bella. So I'll give you my opinion. Uh, First of all, if you read in, I I think I misquoted this uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you read in the book of Genesis, and it's Genesis chapter 15 now, thinking back, and I think I said it was chapter 12, but you'll notice that uh, God promises Abraham certain blessings, and then he tells Abraham to divide the, these some animals in half and lay them out on the ground, and then Abraham falls into a deep sleep and has a vision. And in his vision, he sees a lamp suspended in the air, and it travels between the two halves of the animals. And this was a way in ancient times of making a covenant. The two parties to the covenant, or a treaty, would walk between animals that had been divided in half the long way, nose to tail. And it seems like a bloody thing, but basically it was. If if you break the co- if I break the covenant, I promise you can divide me in half like these animals have been divided in half. So what God was doing was, according to the custom of the time, he was making a covenant with Abraham. And yet in the dream, Abraham doesn't travel between the animals. God makes a one-sided covenant. My own personal take on this is that God made a one-sided covenant with Abraham because man was not a suitable covenant partner. And that is why Jesus Christ had to be born and fulfill the other side of the covenant. So God 
had his side of the covenant that he upheld, and then Jesus Christ as man upheld man's side of the covenant. So this is Jehovah on both sides of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, but what was the covenant? The covenant was to Abraham that through thy seed, all of the kindreds of the earth would be blessed. Now, God did not make a covenant with you and me. God made a covenant with Abraham. So in order for us to qualify for the blessings that God promised to Abraham, we have to join Abraham's seed, and then we're automatically part of the covenant. But if we don't join Abraham's seed, then we have no covenant, if that makes sense. How do we join Abraham's seed? Well, we have to join the new and everlasting covenant, and that's the gospel. That is the modern Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is baptism and all of the other saving ordinances that are administered through the priesthood. When you do that, you are adopted into Abraham's seed if you're not already part of it. And then through you, all of the kindreds of the earth will be blessed. The other part was that he would have posterity as the stars in number, and that he would inherit certain lands in Canaan specifically. So uh, those those promises additionally are extended, right, through uh, eternal increase. And we don't know exactly what form the, the, the prophecy about lands will take when it will be fulfilled, but we can uh, also count on the fact that we're included in all of the parts of the covenant of Abraham when we are part of the new and everlasting covenant. Thank you for that question, Bella. And we have a couple more questions we'll get to uh, as we go. They have to do with this week's lesson. So first of all, I want to talk about chapter one, and I want to spend most of my time here because this is the most fascinating chapter uh, of our lesson today, in my opinion. And so last week we talked about how uh, Nephi likened his people to the children of Israel. He, he said, you know, I, I, I quoted the books of Moses to my brethren, but so that they might more fully believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I also quoted Isaiah to them. And what Isaiah talked about were the promises. So what, what the five books of Moses are about is the creation, the exodus, and entering into the promised land. And then what the books, of, the book of Isaiah is about mostly is how Israel has strayed from the Mosaic Covenant and will be pushed into exile, but eventually redeemed by the Messiah and then gathered again and brought into a new creation. And it's so interesting because that, that is the way that uh, Nephi chose to teach his brethren. And then here is, uh, in the very next week, in, the, in our very next lesson, here is Lehi, as his people are about to enter in or establish a new life in the promised land, he's giving his version of Deuteronomy. So we have, uh, if you remember, the book of Deuteronomy was Moses giving three, basically what you might consider general conference talks, where he was giving a summary of every teaching that he'd, that he'd taught the children of Israel throughout all their wanderings in the wilderness. Everything that he had uh, been given of God to give to them from the time, even before they left Egypt, he, he gave it all again. He repeated everything. Um, Deuteronomy, in fact, means second law. This might be uh, Lehi's second time delivering a lot of these lessons. For sure, some of them he, he's delivered multiple times. I find some more similarities as well, and this is so sad. But if you read the last part of Deuteronomy, what Moses is saying is, I know you're all going to fall short of this covenant. All of these admonitions that I'm giving you, I can see. I already know the future, and you're all going to fall short of it. And so if you should, if you should be 
uh, judged by God and then pushed into exile, please know that God will gather you again one day. And so Moses had been given, given a vision of exactly how all this would turn out. And so it was very hard for him, but he had to admonish them all the same. And you can feel some of that same love and hope and desperation mixed together in this chapter one. Just just absolute heartbreak on the part of Lehi. And we're going to go over it. And so the entire middle part of the chapter, perhaps from verse 7 to verse 23, or yeah, I would say about verse 23, is all poetry. And so we're, we'll go over a little bit about why I think that. Uh, first of all, there are five, what in my opinion, five distinct metaphors that Lehi uses to get his sons to to wake up. And waking up is one of those metaphors, but it's it's probably the, the most uh, descriptive of the group. So he says, awake, my sons, awake, you know, arise from the dust. That's another one. Shake off the chains with which you're bound. And uh, a couple more. So these are repeated throughout the chapter. And it's quite powerful because each of these admonitions is actually a reference into scripture. It's uh, it's a footnote, it's a hyperlink into something that Lehi has taught his children, obviously, in the past. Um, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. First of all, in the very first part of the chapter, what Lehi says is, now I know, we've been, we've been gone from Jerusalem long enough, I've had a vision that the people in Jerusalem have been killed or carried away captive. And if we had stayed there, by this time we would have all perished. And then he gives uh, the covenant. He starts talking about the covenant that God has made with him. And he says, no one is going to ever come into this land. So he says there will be other people brought here from Jerusalem. He's referring specifically to the Mulekites and then to, um, doubtless, Nephi has shared his visions of the future with his father. And, and he's talking also about uh, modern people coming onto the American continent. He's saying no one will be led to this land unless God is with them. And then in verse 7, this is where, uh, if you missed our special episode late last year, this is where we get the another testament of Jesus Christ. So if you remember, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. It's the Mosaic Covenant. The New Testament, the New Covenant, is the one that Christ made with his disciples when he instituted the sacrament at the Last Supper. Uh, and the another testament of Jesus Christ, so the question was, how is why, why does the Book of Mormon also have the word testament in its subtitle? And the reason is, is because here's the covenant that governs this people. There's another covenant about the people of Jesus Christ, and it is precisely this, uh, the, that whoso shall obey the commandments of God will be prospered in this land, and if anybody does not obey those commandments, will be cut off from the presence of God. So that's the Lehite covenant, what you might call and you can find it in verse 9. Wherefore, I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of this land. And then he goes into his admonitions. Now, there's one verse in this chapter where all five admonitions sort of come together. And this is the culmination of the chapter. So rather than go through each of them, you can find them repeated throughout the chapter. And uh, I'll, I'll refer to some of those repetitions because they make them a little more clear. But let's go through these admonitions one by one. First of all, awake my sons. And so you might think, well, what is awake is a pretty uh, generic description of somebody who is just, you know, they're obviously, they're sinning, they're not paying attention, and they just need to wake up. True, 
But remember, now this is the way the, the scriptures were taught. First of all, how many copies of the brass plates do they have, right? They've got one version of the brass plates. They can't make brass plates for every person. There was no such thing as a quad you could carry around. And so the scriptures have to be memorized. And this is the way ancient people did it. They they committed entire tracts or scrolls to memory, if not all of the scriptures. So a man like Lehi would almost certainly have uh, the book of Genesis memorized and perhaps the book of Deuteronomy perhaps the entire scroll of Isaiah he would have memorized. And even though they have the, they do have the brass plates, that is so they can teach, that is so every generation, they don't have to write it down on a new scroll. But he would have had it committed to memory. And so when he's saying, when Lehi is saying these things, and presumably he's educated his sons, and they have parts of this committed to memory as well. Nephi almost certainly would have. Perhaps Laman and Lemuel never put in the work to do it. But they would have had certain lessons repeated to them many, many times. So when he says, awake my sons, he's not just saying, wake up and stop making uh, decisions where you're not paying attention. He's also calling to their minds every scripture where it talks about waking up. And for me, the scripture that I think, so uh, my point about all of these admonitions is they are unlocking an entire host of scriptural lessons that uh, that, Neph- that Lehi doubtless would have given his sons over the years that he's been with them, the decades that he's been teaching them and raising them. So uh, here is a, here's a scripture about waking up. Uh, we're in Isaiah chapter 29. And if you read verse 10, I'll read a few more verses in just a minute. But this, this verse particularly said, For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And so sleep here is associated with blindness. And blindness means you're not paying attention to the prophets and the seers of Jehovah. So anyone who speaks for God, you've ignored them. That's blindness and that's sleep. So when I, when Lehi says to Laman and Lemuel, awake my sons, what he means is start paying attention to the words of God. It's the same thing he was saying in his vision of the tree of life. He was saying, come and partake of the fruit. And they turned around and would not. And that is that is um, that that action, that choice that they made was analogous to falling asleep, to choosing to sleep when they could wake up. So that's awake. Uh, and incidentally, so chapter 29 of Isaiah is later on. Uh, Nephi makes particular mention, especially the first part of this chapter, and quotes it. But what Nephi, and I won't go into detail about that here, but what Nephi does in that chapter is he adds more to Isaiah 29 to restore what I believe was an original chiasmus. We'll talk a little bit more about chiasmus. We have a special episode on it coming up. The the chiasmus in the Book of Mormon is even more dramatic than it is in the Old Testament. Now, we've talked a little bit about what that is. I'll, in case you missed it, I'll explain it briefly. Parallelism is a manner of teaching among societies that have an oral tradition where they repeat something with slightly different words, but with the same or, or a very subtly changed idea so that they can drive the point home and make it more memorable. And chiasmus is a form of parallelism where the order is reversed. Something is taught first in one order and then taught in the reverse order. So if, if I teach you principles A, B, and C, then I would repeat them C, B, A. 
And the reason it's called chiasmus is because the Greek letter chi looks like it is exactly uh, equivalent to a to a modern English capital X in appearance. And that left part of the chi would form a greater than symbol. And so it would indent as it goes in and then come back out as it goes out. So that's why it's called chiasmus. It's a form of parallelism. It's a form of repetition. And it's all over in the Book of Mormon. And it's unmistakable. And it's also... Uh, it's also undoubtedly deliberate. And so what Nephi does with this scripture, Isaiah 29, is he restores a chiasmus that's actually missing in Isaiah. It's fascinating. We'll go over it when we reach that chapter, that's 2 Nephi chapter 27. Uh, but right, and this is, this is the original point from which that quotation comes. In verse 7, the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel, or called Zion in the, in the Book of Mormon, even all that fight against her and her munition and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall be when a hungry man dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. So this is the this is furthering the metaphor of somebody who's sleeping, and they don't they're not in touch with reality. So that's just one of the five admonitions. We're going to go over all five. But the point I want to make here is that if <clears throat> Now, Lehi is undoubtedly speaking in a calm voice. He's an old man. But if you want to think about the kind of psychic scream that the fa this father is having, that this is about as loud as he can make his voice, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking. He is trying to include every single possible lesson, every single possible reference, and he's trying to intertwine them so that they will be so powerful that his sons will actually snap out of this spiritual trance that they seem to be in and stop sinning and stop heading for the cliff that he's been able to see for so long, this cliff of, of damnation and terrible choices, and instead just start making good choices and be kind to their brother and start listening to him. It's so simple. He can see exactly how they can change, and yet he knows that they won't do it. And so he's crying out with all the energy of his soul. And this verse 23 is where they all culminate. And, uh, for me, many of you probably have had the chance to eat a pomegranate, but the thing that came to my mind is when I, when I grew up in Las Vegas, we had pomegranate trees in our backyard, and you can't find pomegranates like this in the store. If you ignore the pomegranates long enough, in the late fall, they, they get so large that they're the size of a huge grapefruit or even bigger, and the pomegranates would split open. They'd have so much juice inside that they'd split open, and you could see and you could see all the, all the fruits and all the wonderful reward there is if you just if you just apply a little bit of pressure and then you can pick out all the seeds and eat that fruit when they're at their absolute juiciest and that's what this chapter and especially this verse feels like to me it's lehi has loaded this with so much meaning that it's like a that's like an overripe pomegranate that is actually bursting with meaning and there's one example of the five. The second admonition that he gives them is arise from the dust. Now earlier in the chapter, that this this admonition is repeated three times. Once in verse 14, once in verse 21. And in verse 21, the way that Lehi phrases it, he says, in order that I might not be brought down with grief and sorrow to the grave, arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Now this is fascinating. I'm going to explain this one. This is probably my favorite one. Uh, now, this is directly from, there's no doubt about it, this is directly from Genesis chapter 2. If we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So this is how you arise from the dust. This is when Adam was created. God created a man out of the dust of the ground, and then he arose when God breathed into him his life. The word for man, the word for mankind in Hebrew is Adam, and that was why Adam was given his name. He is a man. And uh, so when God formed Adam, now Adam's name is a very particular name, and uh, there are actually two different correlations with Adam's name. The first one is you break Adam's name up, and the first part is the letter Aleph, which is sort of just a silent letter. And that letter alone has a meaning. It's a word meaning a teacher. And the word Dam means blood. So the word Aleph plus Dam means teacher of blood. What does that mean, teacher of blood? Think about what God created before he created man. He created beasts of the field. And beasts are not regulated by reason. And so they're just blood, they're just flesh, they're just dust. And what God did special with man, differently with man, the way man is unique, is that God breathed his spirit into him. The blood is ruled by God's spirit. The blood is ruled by a conscience. And so the teacher of man is this ruach, the breath of God that gave man his life, that that inhabited the dust and created from that a living spirit. So Adam, Adam means man, and Adama is actually earth. So arise from the, then this is, this is possibly the, even the way that Lehi would have said it, because he was certainly speaking Hebrew to his sons. He would have said, come up from Adama and become Adam. And he was trying to point them back to Genesis chapter 2 and give them the lesson that they were acting like beasts. Uh, and we've we've given you tons of, over the course of the last couple of years, we've given you tons of metaphors where um, men that are unruled by spirit are called beasts, especially in Daniel, the book of Daniel, but also by Jesus Christ. And in opposition to the beasts is the son of man. And so what the the lesson that Lehi is here saying when he says, arise from the dust, what he's saying is allow yourself to be ruled by the spirit of God that is in you. And don't just be the beasts that you are, this un, unfettered selfishness and greed and might makes right. Allow yourself to be ruled by the gentleness and sweetness of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God that is within you. It's what gave you breath. It's what created you. And so allow it to rule. Allow it to teach your blood how to be a man. It's such a powerful lesson. So awake means get out of a deep sleep, listen to the prophet. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Means allow this breath of God to rule your flesh. Two powerful lessons right out of the Old Testament in one sentence. It's fantastic. Shake off the chains. That's the third. Uh, here we are back in Second uh, Nephi chapter 1, verse 23. Shake off the chains with which ye are bound. Now this one, we have to guess a little bit. I, I kind of think this is a reference to the 68th Psalm. So if you read uh, verse 6, God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Now if you start earlier in this Psalm, uh, it, it starts in verse 1 like this, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. So, uh, and it goes on this way, that the enemies of God will be scattered, and those who are rebellious 
will be set in a dry land, and those who believe in God will be rewarded and brought to a comfortable place. This is a the the sh- shaking off of chains. This is a, a psalm of justice, of final justice and judgment. So what this means is that God is going to bring this, and this is a common theme throughout the entire Book of Mormon, that God will restore, the word restoration means God will restore good to those who have chosen good and evil to those who have chosen evil. So when Lehi says to Laman and Lemuel, shake off the chains with which ye are bound, what he means is there will come a time for final justice. And it's not something you would want to be on the wrong side of. You know, please, now, now is the time when you can choose which direction you're going to go in because you're not going to enjoy what happens if you don't shake off these chains. The rebellious will dwell in a dry land, as, as uh, the 68th Psalm says. So another one of Lehi's ad- admonitions, and it's the second one, but we'll, we'll handle it fourth. Put on the armor of righteousness. Now, this is a clear reference to Isaiah chapter 59. And I'm going to read you that verse. It's verse 17. Uh, for and just for your information, the entire first part of this chapter is the prophet talking about how God looked on Israel to find one righteous person, anyone that he could trust to bring judgment and righteousness. So tzedakah meant right relationships, right judgment, the ability the ability to treat the poor correctly rather than to give uh, preference to the rich people because they could. Uh, that it's righteousness in government, right? So the rich people could reward you, and so you give them preferential treatment. It's this sort of corruption that he finds everywhere, and wickedness spiritually among the priests, and procedurally among the kings and rulers. There was just corruption everywhere instead of righteousness. So that's what righteousness means, is right acting, right relationships. And the he spends the entire first part of the chapter talking about that, and then Isaiah shifts and starts talking about what God will do because he has found no righteous man. In verse 16, he says, And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. So in other words, God is going to step in. Because there's no righteous person in all of Israel, God has to step in and be that righteous person. Verse 17, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. A helmet of salvation upon his head, he put the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. So God will put on him, he will wear all of the proper attributes that he wanted man to have, and they will imbue him with power from on high. This is a very messianic scripture, by the way. It's a a perfect prophecy of Jesus Christ, and it goes right in line with what I was saying earlier about how God kept his part of of the Abrahamic covenant as God, and then he will be born into earth. He will condescend to come to earth in order to fulfill the other part of the covenant as man. And that's exactly what uh, this is prophesying. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. So when Lehi says to uh, Laman and Lemuel, put on the armor of righteousness, what he means is you do not want to have a corrupt society. You don't want to be both spiritually and governmentally corrupt because God can't find any righteousness among you. You've got to have righteousness or else he will have to do it. And if he has to do it, again, like we found out with the chains, you're not going to like the result. When final justice comes, when judgment arrives, it's too late to be the one that was righteous all along. And he's just saying, please listen to Nephi. Nephi is actually 
figured this one out if you will just pay attention to him. He can lead you in the right way. The final admonition that I'll talk about, uh, that I'm taking them out of order, but is come forth out of obscurity. Now, obscurity, uh, the modern meaning of it means that somebody is unknown. If they live in obscurity, it means nobody really knows about them. Um, but what it, what it used to mean is darkness. If something is obscured, it's covered over and left in darkness underneath a shroud or a covering. And that's the way it was used in the Old Testament, and that's doubtless the way that uh, Joseph Smith translated it. And so along with the verse that we already read in Isaiah chapter 29 about blindness being the act of not, not listening to the prophet, uh, that would go along with somebody who's in darkness. But I, I found this reference, and, and I think this might have been, first of all, we already believe, or I, I believe that I know, but you, you can take my opinion if you like, that Lehi was referring to Isaiah 59. One chapter before that, Isaiah 58, you may remember that chapter. It's where Isaiah teaches about fasting. And what does he say? Fasting isn't for the purpose of you feeling miserable, and it's not for the purpose of you showing how spiritual you are. It's for the purpose of breaking every bond, for helping the poor. And if you extend an arm of fellowship and charity to the poor, then you have accomplished the fast that I have ordained. And one of the promises, if you do it right, if you if you truly extend charity to the poor and bless the lives of the poor and you're generous, then the blessing is in verse 10, so Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10, if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. So this is a promise when, when Isaiah says, or I'm sorry, when Lehi says to Laman and Lemuel, uh, come forth out of obscurity. He's begging them to change their hearts and be gracious and generous with the people who are less fortunate than them. Now, Laman and Lemuel are still the rulers. We would, I mean, If there was a political organization, Laman and Lemuel are the strongest. And so even though the reason that they keep getting upset with Nephi is because he's bucking the established order of the strongest ruling. Laman and Lemuel are the ones who are supposed to be making the decisions. And so it's doubtful that Nephi was making most of the decisions. He was allowing Laman and Lemuel to make the bulk of the decisions. But when it got really important and when they disagreed, then God had to back Nephi up. And that's why they kept having friction. That This is just a guess, but that may be the reason why Lehi was talking about uh, justice and righteousness. And now he's talking about generosity. He's saying, you can't use your power for evil and you can't be corrupt rulers. You have to be generous. And if you will do these things, then you'll be blessed. So you can see how in this one verse, I'm going to read the verse now, and hopefully it will have a little bit more meaning to you. This is Second uh, Nephi chapter 1, verse 23. Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness, shake off the chains with which ye are bound, come forth out of obscurity, and arise from the dust. Now maybe you can hear the volume, metaphorically speaking, that Lehi is screaming this lesson. He's, he's, he's telling his sons with all the energy he could possibly have, please avert this dreadful fate that I've foreseen for you. Uh, he, he even says, uh, my heart hath been, verse 17, this is Second uh, Nephi chapter 1, verse 17, my heart hath been weighed down with sorrow from time to time, for I have feared, lest for the hardness of your hearts, the Lord your God should come out in the fullness of his wrath upon you, that you be cut off 
and destroyed forever, or that a cursing should come upon you for the space of many generations, and ye are visited by the sword and by famine, and are hated, and are led according to the will and captivity of the devil. O my sons, that these things might not come upon you, but that ye might be a choice and favored people of the Lord. But behold, his will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. So this is Lehi saying, either I've had it explained to me in detail by Nephi, or I've seen the vision of Nephi myself, but I already know what happens to our people, and it's terrible. So please try to avoid it if you can. And then also realizing, I've already seen it. It's This is the particular burden of a prophet who is given a vision of the future, is that there are certain things that my guess is that God told them if they'll repent, they can still avoid this, but he kind of he kind of thought they wouldn't. It must have been so difficult for a father to see this of his two beloved sons. So that's that's Second Nephi chapter 1, one of the most powerful chapters you'll find anywhere. And so think about this. Here's a, here is the parallel with Deuteronomy. Uh, uh, Moses giving the children of Israel his prophecy, go into the land of Canaan, and there you're going to keep the statutes of the Lord. You're going to keep these covenants. And if you do, here are all the blessings you can receive. But if you don't, and I kind of know that you won't, then you'll be exiled and eventually God will redeem you. And here is Lehi saying the same thing. Here are the commandments of God. Please keep them. I'm going to reiterate the lessons that I've been teaching you all along. And if you will keep them, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, then here's what will happen. And I kind of think you won't. So similar to Deuteronomy, uh, just as last week's lesson was so similar to Exodus. It's absolutely fascinating. It's such a rich uh, area for pondering and study. So if you if you care to uh, do a comparison between 2 Nephi chapters 1, 2, and 3, and uh, maybe 4, and the last few chapters of Deuteronomy. Um, at the end of the chapter, Lehi talks to Zoram as well, and he says, you've been loyal you know, your children will receive the same blessings as Nephi's children will. So that takes us to chapter 2. Now he talks to Jacob. So remember, uh, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi were the four sons of Lehi that leave Jerusalem. Jacob and Joseph, born in the wilderness. Zoram, the, the servant who accompanies them. The sons of Ishmael, who we never, whose names we never find out. Uh, these are the people that he's going to bless and talk about. Okay, um, and so now we're to Jacob. We've, we, he's been talking mostly to Laman and Lemuel, we can assume, even though he only named them at the end of chapter 1. But now Lehi is talking to Jacob. Now, uh, the first lesson that I take from this chapter, look at the difference between what a prophet is able to teach when he has a, an audience that is prepared in the Spirit. So one of the first things we learn about Jacob is that in, in his youth, he has already been visited by Jesus Christ. He's seen the Savior in, in a vision of some sort, and he knows his Redeemer. He knows the Savior, and therefore he is a prophet already. And so Lehi, the, the things that Lehi can teach Jacob in this chapter, um, as Nephi says, I believe it's at the beginning of chapter 4. That's in chapter 4, verse 2. Behold, he truly prophesied concerning all his seed, and the prophecies which he wrote, there are not many greater. And here in chapter 2, this is an amazing philosophical treatise on the meaning of life, on God's plan of salvation, and on mankind's agency, our moral agency that we have. And the where the 
Bible was described as having the plain and precious things taken out of it, you will you will search hard in the Book of Mormon <clears throat> or in any book of Scripture to find a chapter that has more plain and precious things than this one. So Second Nephi chapter two, chapter one, amazing parallel with the Book of Deuteronomy. Chapter two, something that you don't even have a parallel for anywhere in the Bible because it, it answers all of those questions that the Bible sort of leaves out there unanswered. And it also answers some of life's hardest questions like why, for example, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer um, in verse 11, I'm just going to read that. This is probably one of the most famous verses in this chapter. Uh, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. What he's saying if, is if there were no opposites, there would only be one thing. And if, it must, and if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. And by sense, what he means is the ability to sense. And that's really powerful. I mean, this is, uh, it may not be as rigorous as uh, some of the syllogisms that a modern philosopher would come up with, but this is quite uh, a profound idea that any philosopher would have to reckon with. If you're thinking about why good things, why bad things happen to good people or why good people have bad things happen to them. There must, if, if you didn't have bad things, you wouldn't even know that good things existed. Now, this is a, an important idea, and it's irrefutable, right? And so he's saying if there was no death, then life would be meaningless. And he talks about this in the context specifically of the fall. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the fall. We're not going to go into it too much. But uh, we do have one of the questions that came in. And this is a question from Dana. Adam and Eve could have children, could have children as a result of the fall. They were commanded to multiply and replenish the earth whilst still, still in the garden. Was this a command they couldn't keep until they were fallen creatures? Why? I always took the commandment as one possible in the garden until Eve partook of the fruit and then would be separated from Adam and thus couldn't fulfill the commandment to multiply. So this is a totally natural uh, conclusion to come to. However, here in the Book of Mormon, what we read is in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 22, And now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden, and all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created, and they must have remained forever and had no end, and they would have had no children, that wherefore they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin." His point was that, so the, the, let, me, let me back up a little bit. The mainstream view of the fall is that Adam and Eve did something evil. What they did was they substituted their own judgment of good and evil for God's judgment of good and evil. And to some extent, that's what they did, right? They lost this uh, constant communication with God where they were getting God's direction on what he wanted them to do. And because they lost that, they actually became able to choose and judge for themselves. And part of that ability to choose is to use your own judgment. And you can't get it perfect when you're a fallen man. And because Adam and Eve fell, the entire earth fell as well. So the answer to your question, Dana, is 
that no, Adam and Eve could not have children in the garden. This is why Eve approached Adam and she said, look, I've partook of the fruit because I want to keep, you want to keep all of Father's commandments. And Adam says, yes, I, I do. And Eve says, well, how are we going to keep the commandment to multiply and replenish the earth? Uh, we've got to take, I took of this fruit so that we could keep that commandment. You're keeping the commandment not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but by doing that, we're also not keeping the commandment to multiply. And that's the one that's important to me. And so I've partaken of the fruit. And if you don't also partake of it, then you then I'll be cast out and you'll be left alone here in the Garden of Eden. So that's how that went down. And the doctrine is clearly taught here in the Book of Mormon that they could not have had children in the garden. In fact, that the entire earth had not fallen. And of course, here in chapter 2 is where we have this marvelous verse, uh, verse 25, the most famous verse probably in our lesson today, Adam fell that men might be. Adam had to fall in order for men to exist. And what is the purpose for men to exist? And men are that they might have joy. When you read this in translation, it's men exist so that they will have joy. Uh, In other words, Adam had to fall so that we could exist, and we exist for the sole purpose or for the main purpose of having joy, of creating joy in our lives for ourselves and for others. Now, uh, if you want to understand a little bit more about the fall, uh, you can go back to the beginning of 2018. It's it's probably, I think, the third or fourth lesson in our Old Testament uh, course of study, and some interesting insights there, especially, you know, what was the state of the earth, outside of the garden, what, you know, what about the dinosaurs, etc.? I don't have answers to all those questions, but I have my conjectures there. So if you're interested in the in some more information about the fall, then then feel free to uh, download that old episode. Uh, they're, they're old episodes, but they're still timeless, you might say. So there are so many different lessons that could be taught from, uh, as, I, as I've hinted, from 2 Nephi chapter 2. And rather than try to teach all of them, I'm going to pick one that I think is super important. So um, first of all, this, this very idea of opposites is so crucial to agency. But there's one opposite that is, I think, more important than any other. And this is my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. But we find a particular phrase in a few places here in chapter 2, verse 13. If there is no, this, the last part of the verse, if there is no God, we are not, neither the earth, for there could have been no creation of things, neither to act nor to be acted upon, wherefore all things must have vanished away. So those, that phrase, acted upon, uh, we're going to find it again in verse 14. And now, my sons, I speak unto you these things for your profit and learning, for there is a God, and he hath created all things, both the heavens and the earth, and all things that in them are both things to act and things to be acted upon. In verse 16, Wherefore the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. So the fall, we we truly did not have agency until the fall happened and there were opposites introduced into the world. Um, and one of my takes that I that I gave in my lesson on the fall was that it was the atonement that brought about the sway of mercy over man. But we actually weren't under the sway of justice until the fall. And the 
some of the evidence for that is found in Alma chapter 41. I totally, I, I wish I could go more into it, but I totally recommend that, that lesson. What we're going to do is we're going to skip forward to verse 26. We're still in 2 Nephi chapter 2. The Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. So, we have that phrase acted upon a few times here, and God created things both to be to, both to act and then to be acted upon, and he created man to act for himself. And now here in verse 26 we learn, men were created to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. Now, this is the main contrast between, and this is my interpretation that I'm imposing on these scriptures, but I think it's so important. This is the main contrast between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel, the attitude of Nephi, the attitude of Laman and Lemuel. They're constantly complaining. You have done this to us. You broke your bow. Uh, Nephi, you want to make yourself a rule over us. We should kill you because you, you forced us to come out of Jerusalem. Their attitude is constantly people who are being acted upon. And they don't seem to realize that they have made choices all along the way that have put them exactly where they are. And what Nephi does is he says, I have power in this situation. I broke my bow. I'm going to go find some wood and make some more. God, you've, you've commanded me to build a ship. Tell me where to find some ore so that I can smelt, smelt that, make tools, and then start cutting down wood, and then eventually build a ship. And constantly, Nephi, and then, you know, I was tied up on a mast. Nephi doesn't even bemoan the fact that he's been acted upon. As soon as he's released, uh, doubtless he was praying for three days, and as soon as he's released, he kneels down and doesn't say, God, how could you keep me on that mast for three days? What he says is, thank you. You have now answered my prayers. I've been praying for three days that you would release me, and you just did it. And so thank you, God. Thank you. And Nephi's attitude is constantly someone who is acting. He's never a victim to his circumstances. And that state of mind where we're not in control of our own choices, somebody else's, is exactly the state of mind that Satan wants to put us in. And if he can get us to believe that, then he can take us, he can take us from uh, the children of goodly parents, as Laman and Lemuel were before they left Jerusalem, all the way down to, be, to where they will be murderers, would-be murderers, and founders of a, uh, of a people that completely lose their grasp on civilization. That is the power of this victim mindset that where uh, we believe that we are only things to be acted upon and not things to act. God gave us the power and the commandment to act and not to be acted upon. And that is, in my opinion, the most powerful of all of the many, many lessons here in 2 Nephi chapter 2. Going on to chapter 3, I, I wish we could spend an entire lesson on chapter 3, but I'm going to cover it very briefly. Uh, and just say that this is the this is the prophecy of Joseph of Egypt about Moses, about Jesus Christ, about Joseph Smith, and it all comes about because uh, Lehi's youngest son has the name of Joseph. Uh, there are people who have done analyses of this chapter and found that the entire chapter follows a chiasmic form, and the reason that Lehi would teach this way is because. Uh, and, and this would have been second nature to him. This would have been second nature to any of the people in the Book of Mormon because they have an oral tradition. And when you teach in the way that uh, you repeat yourself, you have parallelism and especially reverse parallelism like chiasmus. 
then you, uh, you're more likely to have your lesson be remembered because you can only say it once. You're going to speak once and then it's going to be done. And so if you have trained your brain to think in these terms and to, oh, I just, I just said A, B, and C. Well, now I'm going to repeat myself, but I'm going to do it in reverse order. I'm going to say C, B, and A. And that, and therefore, whoever's listening to me will take this lesson. So, uh, take this lesson with them and remember it always. And so, what Lehi is doing with Joseph is he's given him a lot of very complicated information, and he's teaching it to him in the best way he knows how that he might be able to keep it with him and remember it. And it may also be that Nephi, when he later uh, recorded the the preaching, the the admonitions, and the final message of Lehi that he imposed upon it a chiasmic structure. So that's also something that may have happened from the prophet Nephi uh, in his inspired recording of this event. Uh, but that's all we can say. That's all I have time to say about uh, chapter 3, except uh, we have another question about this chapter. And this one comes from Charlie. She asked this question about First Nephi chapter 13. It's a... She says, it has the angel differentiating Nephi's seed well beyond the coming of Christ. Why? Nephi's seed is mixed and mingled and fallen away by this time, and still the angel mentioned it. If God can take stones and raise up a people to Abraham, if any who accept Christ can become God's people, if God supports adoption, and if God is no respecter of persons, then why are bloodlines important? Even today, we are encouraged to seek out and preferentially bless our bloodline when it comes to temple work. Is it the blood that's important to God? Is it the blood that carries the covenant? How can this emphasis on bloodlines be in accordance with loving our neighbor, who presumably wouldn't be of the same bloodline but different household as ourselves? Not to say we can't love both family and neighbors, but to point out that Christ's life doesn't exemplify bloodline preferences. So this is a wonderful and important question. I won't claim to have all of the answer. But I will say that in uh, ancient Hebrew peoples, uh, this is specifically true in uh, the book of Samuel. Samuel's mother was in the temple praying, I need to have a child. If you'll give me, a ch- if you'll give me children, if you'll open my womb, God, then I will give the firstborn to you. And that is exactly what happens. She has a son. She names him Samuel, and she gives him to the Lord. And he becomes a great prophet in Israel. Now, the curse of a barren woman was that if you have, or let, let me put it another way, the hope of every woman who had children was not only that she would have a, the means to carry on her husband's name and have someone to take care of her in her old age, although those were important considerations, it was that through her seed would eventually come the king and then by extension the Messiah. So this is why at the end of the book of Ruth, for example, you have the it gives the the descendancy of Ruth all the way down to the grandfather of David, showing that David the king was descended from Ruth. This was very prestigious that she had uh, a notable king, a ruler, come from her bloodline. And then it became even more important when David received the Davidic covenant that his line, one day there would come a king in his line that would rule forever. And so as glorious as David and Solomon were, there would be a king one day who would eventually be so powerful that the glory would be known everywhere, and he would create a time of eternal peace, a new Jerusalem. The idea that this Messiah would arise from my bloodline 
was very powerful in ancient Israel. And if you didn't have any children, then you were totally put out of the running for that blessing. Now, Lehi's family, all of his descendants, they already know that this won't happen for them. They're not the tribe of Judah. They're not even in Jerusalem anymore. They're not going to go back to Jerusalem before the Messiah is born. They've been shown this in vision. And so this isn't why bloodlines are important to them, but that is the culture that they come from. So that's one reason. The second reason, and this is my opinion, uh, this is my interpretation that I have on the scriptures that I've read. But I believe that when we have ministering angels come to us, that those angels are either from our ancestors or from our future descendants first. The angel's first priority and their first assignment is to look after their own descendants and their own ancestors. And then when they, with what time they have left over, they look after other people. This does feel like God has is a respecter of persons because more angels are going to be dedicated to those people that have more ancestors who, who received the gospel while in this life or received the, or have had their temple work done. However, I suspect that when we see things from an, an eternal perspective, we'll realize that God has done everything exactly right. And those people who don't have any ancestors who ever accepted the gospel, it doesn't mean they don't have any angels watching over them, but it does mean they're going to be the means to bless the majority of both their ancestors and their descendants. And to go back to an earlier question, to go back to Bella's question, how do we receive the blessings of the covenant of Abraham? We receive it by being sealed in a chain, in an unbroken chain. All of mankind will be part of this unbroken chain going back to Abraham. And when that happens, then then Adam will take the entirety of mankind that is now sealed in one huge family and present it to Christ. This is the mission of Adam with the earth, is to take as many people as are willing to be sealed and are, are willing to enter into this covenant and present the entire family of man as a completed work to Jesus Christ. And when that happens, then that's when Jehovah can say, the great work is done. This is what the this is the importance of bloodlines, is that through our bloodlines, we lay claim upon the, pref- the promises, the covenants, the blessings of Abraham. I hope that answers your question. It's as good as I can do. I don't think it's a perfect answer, but I also think that there is much more to be revealed along these lines. So that's uh, 2 Nephi chapter 3. Now in chapter 4, ne- uh, Lehi begins to give advice to the children of Laman and Lemuel, and then also the children of Ishmael. And what he says is, I bless you that you, if you receive a cursing because you're wicked, that it won't fall upon your own heads, but upon those who failed to teach you. (laughs) This is such an interesting lesson. Now, it sounds hopeless. The way he says it is like, look, I'm going to bless you that uh, when you screw up, it won't be entirely your fault. But I I also think that this Uh, this blessing and the way he delivered it, the way Lehi delivered it, actually worked. And I have some evidence for this. So if we flip forward to Jacob chapter 1, verse 13, you can see that Jacob is now taken over and he's describing the people of Nephi. He says, we call the people of Laman that stayed behind, we call them Lamanites, and we call our people, the people who followed Nephi, we call them all Nephites, even though they're made up of Nephites and they're made up of Lamanites and Lemuelites and Ishmaelites 
and Zoramites and Jacobites and Josephites. So every single person has their followers, has their family, and it's kind of like a last name. And so what we can tell from that is that there were children of Laman and there were children of Lemuel and there were children of the sons of Ishmael that followed Nephi when they broke away. What do I mean by broke away? Well, it happens in this chapter. But in any case, this admonition to his grandchildren, uh, the sons of his wicked children, actually seems to have worked for some of them. Some of them followed Nephi. And uh, that's probably part of the reason why Laman and Lemuel stayed so angry with Nephi through the generations. Their their anger was transmitted uh, almost undiminished. So, Lehi finishes his words by talking now to the children of Le- to his grandchildren, right? And also to his son Sam and his children. Who's missing? You notice we've had uh, Lehi's talked to Laman and Lemuel. He's talked to Sam. He's talked to Jacob and Joseph. And he's talked to the his sons-in-law. The people who are missing are Nephi and Sariah. What, isn't that interesting? Because what a, what a patriarch would do before his death is he would take his eldest son and he would say, Son, it is now your duty to look after your mother. This is the reason why you have a birthright, is so that you can look after your mother and your sisters. You have an extra portion in your inheritance for exactly that reason. Now, the fact that he doesn't mention Sariah at all to Laman and Lemuel tells me that Nephi was the one, and this is logical, that Nephi was the one that Lehi had chosen to receive the birthright. And the fact that Nephi doesn't include that, remember, this is Nephi's plates. He is too modest to include the blessings that he received from Lehi. They were probably wondrous, wondrous blessings. And he, didn't, he, he may not have wanted to brag about it, or he may not have considered it appropriate, or it may have been too sacred. And we also don't have the book of Lehi. It may have been recorded there. And uh, the book of Lehi, as we discussed, has been lost. In any case, uh, we don't have a mention of Lehi's admonitions to his son Nephi. But he knew that, and there may have been none. Uh, And if there were none, he knew that Nephi could receive all of the wisdom he needed from the Lord directly. And Lehi dies. So in this chapter, Lehi finishes what he has to say and then goes the way of all the earth. Now, we know that soon, Laman and Lemuel and Nephi are going to have a falling out. But before that happens, uh, we learn the reason why. And in verse 14, Nephi says, or in 13 and 14, Nephi says, They were angry with me because I spoke to them in the power of the Lord, and I felt constrained to speak to them because I'm the prophet, and basically God is telling me, uh, you don't have the the luxury of just letting them sin and not saying anything. You have to bring this kind of stuff up because if you don't, their blood is on your head. That is the way it works. If you're a prophet, you have to speak up. And that's, that's the burden of a prophet. It's described as a burden throughout the Old Testament. And... Uh, So Nephi has to speak up, and then we get, before we learn about Laman and Lemuel's reaction, we get this beautiful psalm. This is also poetry. So from from verse 17 through the end of the chapter, 35, uh, this is one long psalm. Now, without reading anything particular, it's a wonderful, wonderful passage, and you should read it and study it. Without reading any particular part of it, what I will say about the psalms is this. David wrote his psalms as a prayer, many of them at least, as a prayer to God for courage when he would have had otherwise despaired 
because the king wanted to kill him. Uh, so if you remember, David, when David was anointed king, it, it became obvious to Saul that he was going to be supplanted. And in fact, Samuel prophesied this to him. Your, your line will be removed from kingship, and God will actually not allow you to have any progeny whatsoever. And, uh, and David, there will be another to supplant you, and David was the obvious choice. And so there were times when Saul was very kind to David, and then there were times, and there were years, in fact, when Saul was hunting him all across Israel to kill him. And David despaired. I mean, in his Psalms that he writes when he's at his lows, he is vulnerable and raw, and his emotions are right on the surface. He is pouring out his heart to God, and he's and sometimes even a little bit angry or disappointed in God, and we get that very real emotion that comes forth in the Psalms. And Nephi would have read every one of the Psalms. He would have known them so well. And his situation mirrors David's very closely because Laman and Lemuel, probably Laman, uh, they have the political power, they have the might, and they have the will also to enforce their might through force. And what that means is that Nephi is in danger for his life. He may, we don't know exactly, he may have spent some time living with them, trying to make things work. And it may have been just like David and Saul, where uh, David despaired so many times because he spent he spent years just living in the wilderness on the run from Saul, waiting for the blessing that God had promised him that he would eventually become king to take effect. And he had there were at least two times that I can remember, maybe three, where he had the drop on Saul, and he had to prove in the morning that he could have killed him during the night, and he delivered to Saul. Here's uh, here's your sword that I took from you in the middle of the night. Here's the feather that I took. It was it was sitting right beside your bed. I was right there. I could have put my knife in your in your heart. I could have slit your throat, but I didn't do it because I will never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And because in in spite of his righteousness, David was hunted, and pursued and and persecuted for years. And the despair that came, the the heartache, comes out so clearly in the Psalms. And now uh, we have Nephi lamenting the power that his enemies have over him. So it hurts him so deeply. He says, uh, sins do easily beset me. And he says, do, do not be angry because of my enemies. So what he's saying is, don't let the, the fact that my brothers hate me and they're trying to kill me, don't let that please my soul. Don't let that cause you to sin. What a powerful, powerful prayer that even though someone is trying to kill me, I will not allow myself to sin in hating them. Do you see the difference now between acting and being acted upon? If Nephi had the attitude that, oh, woe is me, I'm being acted upon, if he had the attitude of Laman and Lemuel, then he would have been a victim to circumstance, and he would have blamed everyone but himself. Instead, he takes responsibility for his own attitude, and he prays to God that God will help him to change it. This is such a powerful lesson, and this is such a powerful passage of Scripture. That's 2 Nephi chapter 4, verses 17 through 35. All right, so now we finally arrive in chapter 5, our final chapter. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Nephi and his, he, it, said, it starts out right in the verse, it, it became to pass that I, Nephi, did cry much unto the Lord because of the anger of my brethren. That is sort of his description of this psalm that he has just delivered us. But their anger, their anger increased against me insomuch that they did seek to take away my life, etc., uh, etc. Et they... They, our younger brother thinks to rule over us. 
It came to pass that the Lord did warn me that I, Nephi, should depart from them and flee into the wilderness. So I, took, I Nephi, did take my family and Zoram and his family and Sam, my elder brother and his family, Jacob and Joseph, my younger brother and my sisters, and all those who would go with me. Now my question is this, how did they figure out who would go with them? Isn't it so dangerous to think about how you would ask that question? Hey, we're going to leave in the wilderness. Do you want to come with us? And what if the answer is no? What if it's one of the children of Laman? Hey, you seem like you've been a righteous nephew. Would you like to come with us into the wilderness? No, I'm loyal to my dad. And now I'm going to tell him that you're leaving so he can kill you before you go. So I'm, I'm thinking about this like, wow, what a movie th- could be made of this, just this scene alone. Like, how secretive do you have to be? There must have been a lot of revelation occurring. And the Lord would have had to protect them because Laman is f- for sure going to travel faster than the slowest person in Lehi's or Nephi's party, and he's not going to leave the weak people behind. And so God must have covered their tracks so they could get safely away. It must have been quite scary and quite suspenseful. Uh, but eventually they do, and there doesn't. They they seem to be able to escape without incident. They travel. Uh, we take we took our tents and whatsoever things were possible for us, and did journey in the wilderness for the space of many days. Now many days could mean months, right? They traveled a far way away. They were hoping they'd never see their their brothers again because they'd brought them nothing but misery. Now years later, generations later, what what is the claim? What is the grievance that the Lamanites have against the Nephites? The grievance is that you usurped the government that rightfully should have belonged to the older brethren. Now, uh, no, he didn't, right? That is what Nephi, that is the story that Laman and Lemuel told their kids is that Nephi usurped the government. But all Nephi wanted to do was leave. He just wanted to be left alone. He didn't want to govern Laman and Lemuel and take their government over themselves. He just wanted the freedom to govern himself. But the grievance was, you took the government away. Now think about that for a moment. I want to kill you. You want to leave. And so when you leave, I'm angry with you because you took the government away. You took away my government over you. So the grievance of Laman and Lemuel that they passed on to their kids and that makes them angry for generations is, and when you read in the Book of Mormon over and over again, they stirred up their hearts to anger. This is what they're angry about. You wouldn't let me kill you. That's the grievance. And so think about that. You wouldn't, or, or, and, and you can even make it metaphorical. You wouldn't let me deprive you of your liberty. Now, this has been Satan's plan since the beginning of time. I am angry with you because you wouldn't let me enslave you. You wouldn't let me have all power over you. You wanted to have some freedom. And I wanted to have rule over you forever. And so therefore, I have a grievance against you. Now, the argument makes no sense. And yet, you see it pop up over and over again. There are entire systems of government that are dedicated to this grievance. I'm angry with you because you wouldn't let me take away your freedom. And there are aspects to it in a lot of political ideas you'll see on both sides of the political spectrum in America. And I'm sure throughout the world, you'll see it come up in plans that are proposed to do any number of things. But when you see evidence of this idea, when you see it pop up, you can know that it is a manifestation of the plan of Satan, which is, I'm angry with you because you wouldn't let me take away your freedom. It is our job as children of God to act and not be acted upon. This is the plan of Jesus Christ, that he gave us our agency 
That was the entire purpose of the fall and the atonement, so that, number one, we would have two options to choose from, and number two, we would be redeemed from the transgression that was the fall, so that we would then be truly free to choose. We dance on a razor's edge. This is the way I put it. God allows us to be tempted. He allows us to have difficulties in our lives to the point where there really is just our choice between us and sin, that we really could choose either thing, and we just have to pick one. It's almost to the point where it's, we're sort of neutral between one and the other, and then we just have to decide, what, what kind of world do I want to live in? Do I want to live in a world where I believe in God and, and all of his promises will one day come true, or do I want to live in a world where there is no meaning to what I do? And then we just get a pick. Do we want to act or do we want to be acted upon? Do we want the attitude of Laman and Lemuel or do we want the attitude of Nephi? One is harder right now. One requires work. One requires vulnerability. It requires trust in God. It requires faith. And one is easier. We get to blame everyone else for our problems. We get to be acted upon. But the invitation from God is that we will act. So what does Nephi do? He carries away the Liahona, he carries away the plates of brass, he carries away the sword of Laban, and they walk many days away and they build a temple. They build a lot of buildings and they build a temple. And the blacksmith, Nephi, as I've called him, he makes a bunch of copies of the sword of Laban. So I want to just talk about this. Oh, and, and one of the things that Nephi says uh, in verse 20, the word of the Lord was fulfilled which he spake unto me, saying that inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. So this, this is a covenant that has already been fulfilled. Now, in verse 27, Nephi says this, It came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. This is where we get the title for our lesson. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the artifacts. The, in my opinion, we can learn what the manner of happiness is by looking at the artifacts that the, that the Nephites enjoyed. First of all, they worked really hard. They built a lot of buildings, including a temple. They built this temple after the manner of the Temple of Solomon. So it would have had an outer court with a, an altar. It would have had a holy place, and it would have had a holy of holies. And perhaps they even built a replica of the ark. And in the ark, they would have put, for sure, the, black, the brass plates, the liahona, and maybe even the original sword of Laban. They would have put whatever holy things they had with them. So they have the temple. That's their first artifact. And it, is, it shows that the people of Nephi had hard work and industry. Uh, secondly, they have the liahona. The liahona only works when you pay uh, attention to it and you have faith. It works according to the amount of heed and diligence that we gave unto it. So they're led by the Spirit. So they, they're, they have hard work. They have a God-centered society that is built, all these buildings that are built around the temple. And they also are guided by the Spirit. Now, they also have the plates of brass. So they're willing to be led by the Word of God. And finally, they have the sword of Laban. They are people who are willing to defend themselves against anyone who would deprive them of their rights. These are the aspects these are the artifacts that are necessary for us if we want to live after the manner of happiness. We have to be willing to set boundaries that people, other people cannot cross. We have to be willing uh, to not be acted upon, but instead choose to act. We have to be willing to pay attention to the word of the Lord and to the spirit of the Lord, and we have to be willing to work hard because that is the nature of the fall. After the fall, Adam was told, you, 
it is by the sweat of thy brow thou shalt eat thy bread all the days of thy life. This is the manner of happiness. There is no laziness, there is no idleness in the manner of happiness. They worked hard and they were willing to sacrifice. And finally, they had this attitude that Nephi took with him everywhere he went and doubtless taught to everyone that he ruled over. And that attitude is that it is our choice. Given a choice between acting and being acted upon, it is our choice to act. We get to choose our attitude. We get to choose that we have faith in God when things are difficult. And we get to choose to work hard. We get to choose to to believe and have heed and diligence toward the commandments of God and to pay attention to the word of God. And then we get to choose that no one else can take away our freedom. And this is the manner of happiness that all of us, this is the invitation to all of us today. I hope that we can receive that invitation, that we will act and not be acted upon in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.